0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Justin Papadakis. Justin is the COO and Chief Real Estate Officer at the United Soccer League, otherwise known as the USL. We discuss where the league fits in today's sports landscape, how their ownership and profitability model works, their aggressive real estate expansion plans, and more. This was an awesome conversation with Justin, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex but Whoop interprets the data for you so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code JOE at checkout. So go to Whoop, whoo and enter JOE at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8 Sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. Clinical data shows that 8sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, a 32% improvement in sleep quality, and 34% more deep sleep. But it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes Formula One racing team. So go to 8sleep.com Joe, that's J-O-E, to redeem an exclusive 4th of July savings and start sleeping cool this summer. Eatsleep sleep currently ships within the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia.
1: Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right, let's get into this episode. All right, what's up, everyone? I have Justin Papadakis here, who is the COO and Chief Real Estate Officer of the USL. Justin, how are you doing, man? Great, thanks for having me on. Of course, happy to do it. So I want to learn. I uh, have read a lot about you guys. I've been trying to do this for a little bit now, so I'm excited to learn more about what you guys are doing and your role specifically, because I know that your league has placed a premium on the real estate side of things, and you're doing some transactions or, or kind of some stuff on that side that maybe other leagues aren't doing. So. Why don't we first start off with, for people who don't have maybe any knowledge of, of soccer in the U.S. at all, kind of where does the USL fit into the structure today?
1: It's a great question and one that, you know, we've really thought about since we've acquired the league back in 2009 in changing the, the definition of how leagues are, are categorized. So taking a step back, you know, in the United States, leagues have been either major league or minor league and that's the the structure that is across sports. So when we started our league, we thought in the rest of the world, principally in soccer, you don't have that structure. You have, you know, division 1, division 2, division 3. But we thought we could have a hybrid because unlike England, for example, the United States, the size of the United States is equivalent to, you know, essentially Europe, right? So from a population geography, we thought that just like there are 30 Division One leagues across, the, across Europe, the fact that we can only have one top league in soccer, you know, just didn't make sense for us. And so we wanted to go about putting a plan together and putting a product together that down the road, we could present as the top level of soccer in our market. So starting back in 2009, we were very you know very rightly so, categorized as a minor league. We played in largely high school venues. teams had very small staffs. players were were paid very little. the attendances were small, and the teams you know cost fifty a hundred thousand dollars. Fast forward to today, we play in 50 to 100 million dollar stadiums. teams are are valued 50 to a hundred million dollars. We have large staffs, and I think rightly so can argue that from a fan experience perspective, we are the top level of soccer in our markets. And so we don't present ourselves, even though we're technically classified as division two per US soccer. We really try to present a, a different product. And I think the only kind of other similar analogies would be kind of, you know, F1 and IndyCar. Where you kind of have two leagues, and now potentially with PGA and LIV, you kind of have a, a, a similar type of of scenario, and and that's one that I think you know we we helped show that you can have two leagues. One doesn't have to be minor league; it can just be the top level of of the sport in the market. And I think that's what we've really succeeded on.
0: So I want to break a few things down there that I thought were interesting. Right? You talk about the growth. So you the league was acquired in 2009. I think you said, and, and mm-hmm. teams cost 50 K to hundred K you were playing in small stadiums. The payroll was small players weren't making much money. Yeah. Attendance was, was few and far in between that obviously has changed. As you mentioned, now teams are valued closer to 50 million or hundred million dollars and so forth. How did that happen? Like what what happened there?
1: So we had a really, we, we did a lot of analysis, the market and we said, we need a couple of things. First, we need to have stadiums for the the initial growth of, of a team and in connection, a league, you, know, you start off with your four wall revenue, which is, you know, 90 to 100% of your revenue at the beginning. And then in later stages, you move on having non four wall revenue, such as media, but you have to develop the fan base first. And then you need ownership. And along with ownership, you need to develop real asset value. So we started with those kind of three. And worked on a pathway to advance those. On the stadium side, what we did that was very different is we said, we're going to direct our real estate projects from the league office itself. Stadium projects are very complex and they have a long lead cycle. We work in markets for five, six, seven years potentially, in putting assembling the land working on zoning, getting entitlements, putting the financing package together, all of that takes a significant amount of time and a significant amount of risk capital to do. And we do it on a scale of about 35 to 40 active projects at any given time. And so that is a very very different approach than the major leagues, you know, the NFL, NBA, that have grown in a very kind of a lot slower pace of one, maybe every several years or two, a decade. And so what we thought is, and I, I like to use kind of the beer space as an analogy where, you know, the MLS and, and we think that they do a great job. They're kind of Bud Light, Cooler's Light. You know, they all do a great job. They're going to sell a ton of beer, but we want to be more in the craft beer space. So we want to be really community driven clubs. We're going to have a lot more because we have, you know, we can go into smaller markets, but we're also going to really focus on and try to innovate on the stadium economics and now typically stadium anchor developments to help fund the stadium itself. So it's a, it's a very different approach, but one that we've been very, you know, I think uh, successful on. And very importantly, we've become municipally investable. So there's only a couple leagues in, in the United States that are municipally investable. And so getting over that threshold is very difficult. You know, cities, and rightly so.
0: What, what, is that, what does that mean? Municipalities can actually invest in, in the real estate or in the league? So it's a great question.
1: So stadiums, even privately financing stadiums, they require a significant amount of municipal investment, whether they be in the roads, the access points, the infrastructure. You know, so many elements. These are really private public partnerships in so many ways, and so rightly so, our municipal partners, and that could be city, state, county, et cetera, are very risk averse entities. Yep, and so for them to say you know, we are going to finance the construction of a stadium for a team in a league, they have to have a lot of confidence that that league and that team are sustainable long term, right? Because these are 20, 30 year buildings that we're building that need to be financed over that period. So it's very important that that team in that league be around, you know, obviously operating in that building. So there's only, besides your big five leagues, minor league baseball really is the only other league that has received a significant amount of municipal investment to go build stadiums on their behalf. So crossing that, that chasm is very, very important. And one now that, you know, again, seven years ago, we had to convince again, our municipal partners that soccer was investable right? Because, you know, soccer was still an up-and-coming sport. I think we've passed that stage now. And then we had to convince them that the USL was investable. And now it's just a, a matter of, I think, cities now coming to us and saying, hey, we need soccer. We need the USL because we want to attract and retain millennials. We see the economic impact that your stadiums have Have resulted in around the country, so we want you. But getting over that 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 chasm is very difficult, and one that you know we're really proud of.
0: So, how does it work for investors, right? I know that you guys are looking to build. I think I read twenty five to thirty stadiums over the next three to four years, whatever the actual number is, right? But several tens of stadiums. How does that work for investors, right? Say I go in, I want to buy a team, however much they cost right now, but like. Are you guys working with the Munis to build the stadiums and get the financing and do all that and then leasing me back the stadium? Like, just talk me through kind of how that dynamic plays. Well, this
1: was another area that, you know, my my dad did a great job kind of pioneering. And that was to separate out the league from the teams. So again, going back in time, the league office had a couple people and, you know, my dad saw for us to be a first class league it was going to require tens and tens of millions of dollars of investment and very long term you know risk capital right and so in the traditional model of sports the NFL NBA you know really all of them with the exception of of F1 and NASCAR you have the teams own the league Yeah. and where the NFL and NBA and those leagues are today it's a model that that works very well because they have so much media dollars coming in. Where we were back in 2009, it was going to take tens and tens of millions of dollars to, to get where we needed to be and to have a investment horizon that was long-term. So our teams, from a team investor standpoint, you know, we try to set up the most team investor-friendly model as possible. Our teams keep 100% of their local revenue and we share the national media national sponsorship rights and we, we don't have capital calls so the cost to run our 85 person and in rapidly growing league is multiples and multiples what our teams pay as a participation fee to be in the league when there's no capital calls so we fund we knew this was a you know 15 20 year Investment for us to get the league to a point where the cost of running the league was equal to the revenues when media and sponsorship and all these other revenues start kicking in. But then we also said to really get to where we needed to go, we also have multiple leagues that are supporting the larger enterprise. And so we spread out the cost, particularly at the VP and up level, where we can bring on excellent sports executives across many disciplines and really focus our league office staff on how to optimize every aspect of our team's business, whether it's ticket sales, sponsorship, merchandise, digital, etc. We try to bring in top executives in those areas that can work with our teams on a daily basis and really find those best practices and share them with the clubs so that we can really fine tune our businesses. And then also, for like, other strategic initiatives like player development, the league funds the academy program at no cost to the teams to participate in it. But, you know, again, we have that as a long term strategic initiative, which maybe we can get into later, because player transfers are such a big line item in world football, but not here in the United States yet. But In in recent, you know, weeks we've had our kind of record setting transfers. So that will be future, but we're investing in all the the key growth initiatives now on behalf of the teams so that in you know five, ten years, you know, our teams can participate in those revenue streams.
0: Do you guys work with major league soccer in that capacity at all? Right? Like to, to help develop players or or transfer players or move players up and down?
1: So I think we work together as a soccer community and that What we do benefits MLS and what MLS does benefits us. And same with NWSL. So for a sport to develop, you have to have an ecosystem. You need players, coaches, executives, referees, media partners, fans, of course. right? And so you need all of this ecosystem to develop at once. And so we have a shared responsibility for that. And collective investment in advancing this sport, which is just—it's amazing when you look at 1994 and look ahead to 2026, where this sport has come, is the result of a lot of work, a lot of investment. But you know, we can be one of the top soccer countries in the world because of all these efforts. So whether it's talent is evenly distributed across the country, not just in MLS markets or USL markets. So we need to make sure wherever you know, again, looking just from a player development standpoint, wherever that player grows up, that they have access to high quality coaching and training and can be developed to reach their fullest potential. And a lot of times they will be born in a market with a USL team. A lot of times they'll be born in a market with an MLS team. Either way, that player now and going forward will be able to play in quality venues We'll be able to train in great training facilities, play in front of five, ten, 10 plus thousand people a night, and have a front office that is thinking about their holistic development on a day by day basis. Putting that across all of the USL markets, MLS markets, and NWSL markets, that's how we can be a top soccer country in the world. And I think the first time you'll see that in true form will be 2026. And that's so exciting if you're a soccer fan, because really the best days are ahead. And this, our sport is developing at such a high pace that I think a lot of people just don't realize in the, the float down effects haven't fully materialized and they won't really until 2026 after 2026 and beyond, you know, watch out because you U S is going to be a soccer powerhouse.
0: Yeah. That's something I would love to talk more about too, because I've said this for years now and and even today people still give me shit around it but the idea that that soccer is if not already, going to be very soon bigger than the NHL, right? Hockey in the United States, just based on participation numbers, not only globally, but youth participation rates in the United States and so forth, right? Hockey is very difficult to play if you don't have a, an area to play it growing up. Soccer is the complete opposite where all you basically need is a, is a ball and you can kind of even make your own goal, right? So it's it's much easier. How does the U.S. become that soccer powerhouse as a country though, right? Because obviously it's much bigger abroad and internationally in Europe and other places, but is it something where the United States, like if you think about the United States, it's by far and away, obviously, the most lucrative sports market in the world. It's a massive economy, obviously. And if you look at it on a per fan basis for the NFL, the NBA, MLB, et cetera, fans pay a multiple of what other fans pay in other countries to visit their teams, to the merchandise for their team, sponsorships pay more, all of that, right? So how does that happen, right? Is it just the case of The money starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger from a revenue perspective. You're able to get more talent with that money. The talent attracts more viewers and so forth. Or do you guys think about it in a different way?
1: Our view in in the thesis that we had early on was that for a sport to reach its full potential, fans have to have access to it on a week, week by week basis. So many markets in the United States have developed a very core fan base. But we believe, you know, take New Mexico, for example, that when we introduce a professional soccer team with a first class fan experience and really a community driven club, that we create fans because they can watch their club week in and week out. Soccer's developed in the United States very differently than the rest of the world. If you were born in, you know, Manchester, England, you support you support Manchester United you don't also support Barcelona right like you have one club that you support the united states because of how the sports developed it's very different so you can support your local if you live in albuquerque new mexico you go and support new mexico united and then you also might have a premier league team that you also really like watching and so that's fine But to have that local club is such a big, we believe, factor in really fully reaching the the potential for a sport. So that's what we've really focused on is developing a first-class fan experience. And that requires a stadium. That requires a front office to go and really build that, that, that fan experience. And it requires players that we develop them so you have a great product on the field. In addition to media partners and other third party partners that bring the sport to the fan. So again, it really takes an ecosystem. But when you look over the next by 2026, and we have, you know, another 30 stadiums built across the country, which you know we'll get to 30, 35 for Championship League One and 30 to 70 on Super League, that's where fans will get to experience men's and women's professional soccer week in and week out. And that's going to be really exciting if you're a soccer fan, because not only the players getting better, but I think the passion and excitement for the game increases as well.
0: What do you guys look at when you look to enter new markets? Right. Like I always think about the NBA has obviously talked about expansion for a long time, and, and it's certainly a different scenario to some instance because they need this massive TV market and they don't want to impede on other clubs or other teams and so forth. And, and you guys are certainly in a different position, taking a different approach. And I don't think one's right or wrong, but I'm curious how you go about picking new markets and new cities and new counties to enter.
1: So the, the NBA, you know, they're, they're going to be at 32, you know, maybe get up to 34 teams. And so that really works for the NBA because of where they're positioning themselves within the market. Where we're positioning is that we think, you know, markets with 250, 300,000 people and up can sustain a professional team. And so the stadium sizes will be bigger depending on your population. But if we can develop a great stadium with strong economic four wall economics, a team can be supported. And a fan base can be developed along with, you know, again, the youth infrastructure advantages that come with having a professional team. So when we go to markets, we have a lot of conversations and what we're looking for because of how we approach our market development is really a city municipal partner that, you know, really believes in in the power of soccer. We look for stadium development sites that are largely downtown, that are accessible to the entire population. So unlike you know minor league baseball, for example, for a lot of their new builds, really went way out to the suburbs. And sometimes it's easier because there's more money in the new suburbs. But we we are really community driven, and we want, regardless of socioeconomic class, really to be accessible. And that usually means being being downtown. And third, we look for and build a really strong steering committee of people from philanthropic, business leaders, civic leaders, people from the soccer community to really come together and work with us over this, again, could be seven-year process of putting a stadium deal together. And so we get a really good sense of what the excitement will be for that stadium by going through this process. And we really become one with that city because we're spending years and years and years working with all of those local stakeholders. And so I think, again, working on the number of markets we work on, that's something that we have gotten very good at. But more importantly, we think that just the interest level from business leaders or, or community leaders in the power of soccer is really resonating. And now we have example after example after example of it really transforming cities. And so I think the the message, the opportunity is becoming even more and more impactful every year. And now when we look at we're running into a World Cup later this year and then followed by a world cup in 2026 and, and hopefully a women's world cup in 27 soccer is now a proven sport it's a proven investment for investors and now we can really start accelerating because we we have that track record on on both those sides and that's why you know again i think the most exciting days for a soccer fan and the biggest growth i think of any sport
0: will happen in soccer over the next five years. So part of that is expanded for you guys, right? You're, you mentioned that you guys are going to try to build 25 to 30 new stadiums over the next three, four, or five years. That's anywhere between, called seven to 10 a year. How the hell are you guys doing that? That sounds like a tall task, right?
1: It sounds like a tall task, but again, keep in mind that we've been working on this for you know six years, right? So again, we've been very disciplined. Because it's tempting to, you know, just get a team up and running by playing in a inferior venue. But you'll see the projects that we'll announce, you know, over the next six months. Years and years of work has gone into setting us up for a position where we can achieve those numbers. And so, again, they they do sound aggressive, but when taken to a context of six plus years of, of work leading up to this point that's where they become very very achievable
0: what's the entry price for an investor in this league like are there minority shares of these teams you have to buy the whole team just talk me through kind of how you look at prospective investors and talk them through that scenario so for
1: for league 1 or initial franchise fee is 5 million and for championship it's 20 million and so again those have come a long way from the 50,000 back in you know 2008 and importantly and excitingly, those valuations don't really factor in the really strong future revenue growth that our clubs will have. And that revenue growth, of course, translates into valuation growth. So when you think about media, player transfers, sports betting, the physical four wall revenue enhancements, just because we're building we're doubling the size of our average stadium over the next 4 years. And so when you factor all of those revenue enhancements in, we have a very clear pathway for continued valuation growth at the club level. That's what we think about every day and you know, those are going to be reflected in our media deals, in our national sponsorship deals, in our player transfers. And so I think that's what gets, you know, investors really really excited along with of course in and in parallel to the investability of soccer in pro sports as an asset class
0: yeah I mean there's uh, certainly a, a lot of nuance that goes into this stuff but if you just think about it from a revenue perspective five million and 20 million take the average of most pro sports teams trade at what like a six times multiple that's less than a million bucks of revenue a year and 4 million bucks a year of revenue. It's really not that bad if you're keeping 100% of local revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're able to monetize it from that perspective, plus any of the other upside when it comes to media deals, national sponsorships, things like that. You can quickly see how you could probably make some money on that.
1: Well, again, we have, we have a dual mandate, right? So we want for new franchises achieve a level that reflects the value that the league has created over these years. But we also want to price them in a way that leaves significant room for our our investors to be able to show significant growth of their investment. And so it's a dual pronged. and we always are leading with how do we create value for our investors because it's like a house, right? When When your house has a lot of increased value, you put a new kitchen in and you remodel and you improve it same with a sports club right like any other investment if you are sitting on substantial you know equity growth in your investment you put more money into your club the league's value is driven by the club's value and so the the more high quality high performing clubs we have that makes the league worth more which makes our media rights worth more makes our national partnerships worth more which again circles back ultimately makes the teams worth more So That's what we focus on every day, and that's what we use to keep, again, driving this internal investment in our staff and in our strategic investments like the Academy to ensure that our league keeps growing and that we can be in a very strong position, I think like we are now, going to this next media deal to command significant increases because of the value of our of the fan base that we've delivered
0: over the past several years. I love it, man. I think it's great. Anytime that these sports leagues, sports in general can expand in the United States, I'm a big fan of it. And it sounds like you guys are doing that at the local level primarily, which is awesome to see because as you and I both know that these teams and these sports are ingrained in the culture of these communities. So very cool to see that you guys are expanding so rapidly and you're you're attacking so many different cities that maybe the major sports leagues wouldn't even think about going to or or, or would overlook, which is very cool. Last but not least, where can I send people to find you on the internet or more about the USL on the internet? So we have several
1: different websites and social handles for, for our various different properties. You know, we didn't touch on as much, but we'd really encourage everyone to check out, you know, really exciting news we'll have over the next couple of months about the USL super league. The women's space is growing so fast from a fan perspective, from a corporate perspective, from a media perspective, and that's an area that is a real pillar for us as a league, for our owners, and for our fans. And so we're going to be the first, I believe, professional sports league to have equal base compensation for our men's and women's teams. Women's sports, just like men's soccer and men's USL soccer, has grown tremendously over the past you know, several years. I think you're going to see a faster acceleration in the women's space. And so it's something that we're so excited about. And it's really funny, like when we talk with cities, so much of our conversations are about women's soccer. And it's like, oh, by the way, I have to remind them we also have, you know, men's soccer. And so to see that flip of not only cities really bought in on soccer, but bought in on on women's soccer and the power of women's professional sports is so exciting. And again, we are replicating the whole player pathway from youth to pro in the women's space. And so I think, you know, when we talk about ecosystem, the women's side is just as important as the men's side. And I think both now are going to be on a a pathway to growth over the next several years.
0: Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. And I encourage everyone to go check out what you guys are doing because the league is growing fast. And my guess is that if we were to do this in a year or two years from now, again, the league is going to be much bigger than it is today. So congrats on the success that you guys have had so far. And I look forward to following along in the future. Likewise, love the podcast.
1: Thanks for what you do, because I think you know these, these are what really trained the business leaders of tomorrow. Such a big fan, so appreciate you having me on.
0: Of course. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.